let's give each other some grace. If you're pet owners and you're upset that you can't get your pet in sooner or that you're frustrated that your your veterinary hospital is still working curbside and can't do the face to face, you know, have some grace and that we're not all perfect as veterinary professionals and we're all human. So you getting upset at us over something that we literally are trying not to do, but it's just we're bound by time and space. It hurts. It really hurts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Whisker Talks, the veterinary marketing podcast. I'm Adam Greenbaum, CEO and founder of Whisker Cloud. Today, I have Dr. Tina Tran and Dr. Sharice Sullivan from the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association. How are you? Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Thank you both so much for being here. And and I broke my top rule that everyone laughs at. I, I We always do these episodes and everyone says, don't date it. Don't say dates. Don't say times. And I literally said, happy Friday to start it off. So that's great. So I did, Adam, I did happen to listen to the beginning of the DVM Moms podcast where you did that exact same thing. So I don't know if you want to uh, date yourself by commenting on something about the Olympics so then people can know exactly when this is recorded, but... <laughs> Well, and I it, like I've made jokes about that on other podcasts because, you know, just with our schedule and whatnot, sometimes the episodes go out in a week or two, sometimes they go out in a month. And you had me, a diehard Lakers fan, celebrating the Lakers championship on an episode. And it was six weeks after. And I'm like, and the Lakers were champions last week and go Dodgers. So that was uh, horrible. But thank you both so much for being here. This is really cool. And, you know, we had we just had a great chat. Pre-recording, it just made me even more excited about this. And and I'll just, you know, I want people to get to know you both. So everyone that listens knows I love Marvel. So I'm going to ask you both your veterinary origin story. The spider bites your hand. You become Spider-Woman. The, the atomic bomb, the gamma radiation bomb drops. And Bruce Banner's trying to save a young teenager and ends up becoming the Hulk. So how did the two of you each find your way to veterinary medicine? You can go first, Sharice. So I started off as a kid when I was thinking about what I was going to be growing up. I think the first thing I wanted to be was a nurse. And then I was like, oh, people are kind of gross. So then I decided I wanted to be an astronaut. And I was like really big into like space and NASA and everything. And then I started flying in airplanes and realized that it really like hurt my ears. So I was like, it'll probably be much worse, like going to the moon. So then <laughs> I was like, oh, well, I really like science and I really like animals. So maybe I'll be a veterinarian. And probably since about second grade, it stuck. And that's early. I mean, that's earlier than most people say. Yeah. Um, and I guess timing wise, my uh, story is very similar to Sharice in that I knew very early on that I loved animals. I'm a very introverted person by nature. And so to be around animals to me was very calming and relaxing. And I guess the other piece I'll add is that I have been fortunate enough that in my extended family, I have several veterinarians that lived in very close proximity to me growing up. So within 30 minutes of my home. And so 
I have an aunt and an uncle who own a small animal practice outside of Chicago. And so their kids, my cousins, were, were all about the same age. And so growing up, a lot of our uh, days off, our winter and summer breaks were spent in the back of the hospital, learning how to clean exam rooms, stock exam rooms. You know, I got to see some cool surgeries through the, the window. Um, so really got to get that close up view very early on. Also have a couple of other relatives that are veterinarians as well. And so I think for me, it was role modeled by somebody who actually looked and sounded like me and that I had easy access to, which is an unusual thing, I think in general, but you know, more particularly relative to those that identify as people of color within the profession, you usually don't get that type of access so early on. At the time, it just seemed normal. And so I thought everybody had that experience and that's how everybody found their way into veterinary medicine. Um, and it wasn't until much later that I realized, no, that is kind of different than most people. So that's that's my origin story. Wow. And I and I was just telling you a story off, you know, before we started recording, just, you know, when I launched Whisker Cloud and I was new to veterinary medicine, I had a tech background. And, you know, I remember our first 15 customers and and I remember saying to my wife, OK, this is crazy. We have 15 customers that use Whisker Cloud and every single one of them is a female practice owner is Caucasian that is 55 to 65 and me being a, a lover of data and, you know, especially with a lot of the marketing advertising we do, everything's about data and analytics and trends. And I think even as we've continued to grow, the percentage of our customers that sort of fall into that category has always remained in the high 90%. And it's always just been really interesting for me, just sort of, you know, not being a vet, not growing up in veterinary medicine and and sort of like looking at it. And and it always just blows my mind. And again, it's that's not just veterinary medicine. I mean, that's the tech world too. I mean, it's it's sadly, it's a lot. And that's why I'm so excited for Whisker Cloud to partner with you and to have you both on here to sort of have that discussion because, you know, as a lot of people know, we send out questionnaires before people come on. And to be honest, it's not really meant to be a big driver for our conversation, but I'm always curious. So, you know, we ask, you know, what made you want to be a vet? Favorite thing about vet med, least favorite thing about vet med. You both had perfect answers for least favorite thing about vet med that I want to dive into. But my wife and others have told me, you know, sometimes you're, they say to me, sometimes you're negative on the podcast. And I said, well, you call it negative. I think it's real. Unfortunately, shit's real out there. And if you, if we ignore the stuff that sucks, it gets bad. So let's talk through our favorite things about vet med. You know, Sharice, tell me what makes life so great in vet med for you. I think that it's the people and we'll revisit that answer again. Um, <laughs> I mean, just working with different colleagues, working with clients who are really dedicated to their owner, clients who are really dedicated to their pets um, and being able to help them. And, you know, I still get a thrill from grateful owners. You know, it's not always the like, I saved this pet from the brink of death because that rarely, rarely happens. Sometimes it's just the, thank you for telling me about heartworm prevention. I wouldn't have known. And now I know I'm going to keep my pet on heartworm prevention, you know, every single month for the rest of their life. And just being able to um, impact people in that way uh, is, is really exciting to me still. So I made the mistake of reading Sharice's answers before I emailed them off. And so she said literally the same thing I would have said. And, and so I just want to second 
what Sharice is saying that, you know, people are definitely a real positive aspect of veterinary medicine. Um, it, it is something that I cherish is those moments when I connect with an owner or connect with a veterinary student or a veterinary technology student and the light bulb goes off or the owner feels empowered, like they understand more about how to care for their pet. And it's because of something you told them, um, you know, like some piece of information you educated them, whether it's about heartworm prevention or about diet or behavior or just what's normal behavior for their pet. And to be able to give that information to them and to see them get so excited because they think, oh, my gosh, OK, so this now makes sense to me. I think that is a really great part of veterinary medicine. The other aspect I, I enjoy about veterinary medicine, because I've lived it, is that there are lots of different career paths that you can do uh, with a single degree uh, with your veterinary medicine degree. And I mean, I'm a perfect example of that. I, When I graduated, I thought I would stay as a small animal, cat and dog, veterinarian, eventually own a practice and live out my life in Southern California. Uh, that seemed pretty ideal at the time. And, you know, life happens when we started a family and I realized that, you know, the, the full time grind of associate work is really rough and thought for a hot minute about being a practice owner and give like major kudos to anyone who can do it, especially with young children, because it is not easy. After that, decided to do some work in shelter medicine, decided to switch into academia and taught in a community college in a veterinary technology program, was a veterinary technology program director at a major university in the Midwest. And then now I'm on faculty at uh, University of Arizona's veterinary school, which is one of two very, very new veterinary schools. And so, you know, with that one degree, I've been able to do a lot of different things and meet a lot of really interesting people as well. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's what I love most about it. Wow. Yeah, I mean, like, this is why I'm in veterinary medicine, too. In fact, I, I just, it's funny, my cat, we have two dogs and a cat, there are children, and my cat is screaming at the window, scratching at the screen right now. She's literally about to jump on the desk and start punching the microphone mid-conversation, so here we go. But I love veterinary medicine. A lot of people have said to me, well, whisker cloud's been successful. Why don't you do it for lawyers, dentists, podiatrists? And it's just a simple answer. I just don't care about those things. I care about animals. I don't want to look at lawyer faces or gavels. I don't want to look at people's mouths all day on a website, bunch of smiling stock photos. That's gross. So, and I'm with you all. Like I, you know, when I got into vet medicine and it's very funny because Sharice and I would, I, you know, reading her answers, I laughed because we have the same answers. We would, we would have the same answers, but I mean, it is, it's the people. And for me, the way this industry is accepted me and my company and, and, and the way they treat my employees and the great meals I've had with people, the great conversations I've had with people, it's really cool. And this is a, this is an industry when I tell people what I do, I say veterinary medicine is an industry that wants so badly to change and has no idea how to do it. And then they talk about it and they put plans in place and it just doesn't happen. And it's frustrating for you too and your organization. It's frustrating for the things that we deal with that we can kind of jump into later. But, you know, so we're obviously we all agree that everything's great and the people are great and pet owners are great and taking care, teaching the next generation and taking care of animals is great. But just like the rest of America saying everything's great doesn't get clicks. So let's talk about and when I, and when just everyone knows, we ask, what's your least favorite thing about veterinary medicine? We don't ask that because I want this to go in a negative direction, but 
we ask that because again, you can't ignore the bad stuff in life. We have to hit it head on and we have to, we have to have groups like the MCVMA and these people that are actually working to fix things that are issues in our industry. So Sharice, you said that the people were your favorite thing about VetMed. And then what was your answer for the least favorite thing about VetMed? Shocker. It's the people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And you know what? I agree with that. But please elaborate. I, I hope you're not looking at me, Sharif. On rare, in, rare occasions, it's the same people. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> I'm like, you were all, no, no, of course not Tina or Adam, but you know, it's like, man, yesterday you were just awesome. But today, like what is going on? <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, my least favorite thing sometimes is just the people, you know, sometimes people are really toxic in our industry and some of the, not even just the people, but some of the institutions in our industry are just really toxic. And unfortunately, sometimes you you get some clients that bring negative energy and, and vibes to the situation. That's usually when it's a bad day for me because, you know, I'm really there to help people and their pets. And, you know, if you get clients who are rude and inconsiderate, that really puts a damper on, on my day personally. So, Tina, what do you think? What's what's the least? And then I have some follow ups to that, but I want to hear both of you and what you think. I'm over here smiling because I'm just like, yep. Um, but from my perspective, you know, I think it's that resistance to change within the profession, you know, on a lot of different levels. So we talk about the work that the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association does to address some of the inequities within the profession, you know, the, the lack of diversity, all of those things. But then there's other examples of it, too, within the profession. So, um, you know, like virtual veterinary care, telehealth, telemedicine is something that um, as a profession we are struggling with, even though it's very clear from the research that pet owners want telehealth. They want telemedicine. And for a number of reasons, the profession has not embraced that. And some of them very valid as far as what is that veterinarian client-patient relationship? What does that look like legally? And how do we stay within but then there's also this other piece, and I, and I can say this because I do veterinary telehealth consulting on the side, which is a lot of the chat sessions I have with owners are not that they want a diagnosis, not that they want you to tell them what medication they should get at Walgreens or their nearby pharmacy, but it's oftentimes a validation that the concern that they have about their pet is a valid concern and that, yes, you should go either to the emergency clinic or you should go to your veterinarian to have it checked out. Or that the behavior or thing that they're seeing is is normal, and you know it's just it's COVID, so they're staring at their pet while they while the pet sleeps, and so they don't realize that that's not a seizure. That's actually your pet just actively dreaming. You know, it's totally fine. You know, and a lot and a lot of the other things that I chat about with owners are again just about general education about what is normal. You know, about behavior, about nutrition, diet, a lot of those things. And so, and you know, to Sharice's point, a lot of them are super grateful, even if I don't give them the final answer to say this is my diagnosis. You know, a lot of them just want to feel empowered that they're doing what they can for their pet. To me, it's challenging that um, you know there's a, a resistance to change in many aspects, but those are the two that really kind of jump out at me as far as the lack of diversity um, within our profession, as well as, um, you know, there's a lot of pushback with virtual veterinary care. Okay. And again, I want to come at this not as an expert. I want to come at this as someone with data, someone that 
someone whose company works with veterinary professionals in 48 states. And I think we're in six or seven countries now. I think we're on three continents. So, you know, we have data and we met people from all around the world. And it's so interesting, too, because what Cherie said was really on point. You know, it's like the people are amazing. And then the people and for us, it was I'm not kidding you. There's like a most wanted list. And we don't it's not like people we talk about, but we've got like the same 10 veterinarians that work with Whisker Cloud. Most have been here a long time and love us and are very successful. But my God, these people are just so horrible to my support team, to our, you know, our account managers. And I can't understand why I can't understand why they're so rude and I can't understand why they do this. And then, you know, I, I, I hear the stories about what you all go through on a daily basis every day. There's not an easy day. And I've said this on the podcast before we had a new guy start this week and I tell every new employee the same thing. I say, listen, I want you to understand something right now. You're going to be working with veterinary professionals, some vets, some practice managers, some nurses. You know, you're going to be working with these people. They're from all over the world. They all have different backgrounds and they all communicate differently. So you're going to work your ass off and you're going to do everything right at Whisker Cloud. You're not going to get a lot of pleases and thank yous. It just doesn't happen, which is fine. And I, and I always say, if you ever think you're having a bad day and you think that someone spoke to you badly, try doing that while also having to tell three families a bad diagnosis on their pet or having to put down a couple pets and watching, you know, children's heart get broken. So we kind of talk through those things, but I'm in the veterinary, I'm in the Facebook groups, I'm in the LinkedIn groups. And I, and I talk about these groups a lot. Holy shit, they're so toxic. They're so bad. Every group. Why? And why does everyone want to rile each other up and go crazy? Do either of you have thoughts on sort of just the online communications between these people? And I mean, I watch it spiral into absolute chaos often. I guess I'll let Tina weigh in on that. But I did want to say, like, what you were saying about everything you have to go through with Whisker Cloud. It's amazing that people want you to like develop that for like other professions. Like there's not enough work in veterinary medicine with all this stuff that we have to deal with. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, oh, trust me. And we get emails from lawyers. Yeah. Lawyers are like, Hey, can you do our website? We want, you know, we saw, we, or, you know, we get a lot of people say, I love my veterinarian's website. Can you do mine? I do this or I do that. We're always like, you know, listen, we got, we own 200,000 amazing, like high quality photos and videos. They're all cats and dogs. Like we've got copywriters on staff. They're all from the veterinary profession. We have multiple people from vet med, a couple who just said, screw this, I'm done. And we were like, oh, please come over here. Uh, it's just as crazy, but sort of differently. Um, so yeah, I appreciate that. But yeah, we're, uh, you know, I, again, I don't want to work with lawyers. That sounds horrible. No offense to any lawyers, including, including our lawyer, Grant. I love you, man. Uh, so I guess to address that question of why does it get so toxic in these, I'm assuming you're talking specifically about veterinary um, social media groups. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. Right. So, and this is, this is not based on any research. This is me lurking and me just like sitting in the corner and watching with popcorn is um, honestly, I think part of it is the the challenge that happens when you move things online and you you miss the face-to-face interaction with people and you can't see like their internet you can't hear intonations you can't pick up body language that you know because i'm the kind of person that 
yeah, I like to complain a lot. Like ask my husband, he knows. But when I complain, I complain not because I want you to problem solve or, you know, think of some way that I'm, you know, like play devil's advocate. Like that makes me more upset than anything. Like don't try to justify the other person and how they're doing me wrong. Like just stay here in my corner and say how crappy the other person's being to me. And that's it. Like, I don't need you to solve it. I just need you to do that for me. But you lose that sometimes when you go to social media. And I think in some cases, people are just venting just to vent. And then there's some some people that want to problem solve and they want to help because they think that that's what the person wants, you know, that that's the response that they want. And then obviously there's those things that are controversial and it's like there's no way to win no matter which way you look at it. And, you know, at the end of the day, you can't please everybody. I've learned that over time. And so I, I think it's kind of a like a combination of those things. Like you lose all that when you go to social media, you know, that there's some amount of anonymity, even if you see somebody's name or a photo, like people just say stuff and do stuff that I think, my goodness, would you say that same thing to me if I was standing right in front of you? I don't, I hope not. I hope not. But, you know, that's why I, I you know, I don't spend that much time in it because it's just it, exactly what you said. It's super toxic. Um and and I'm fortunate enough that I have my own support network that if I want to complain about something, then I do it to them and they know that I don't want it to be solved. I just want to complain. So, um, so yeah, that's just, that's my hypothesis. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I show my wife these things and then I'll see a crazy post and I'll, she'll be like, wow, that's nuts. And I'm like, oh God, that's one of our customers. <laughs> Great. And now I'm like, oh God. And like, they don't, no one cares. Like, oh, who does their marketing and website? I'm like, no, I know her. She's calm. So yeah, that happens. That happens often. But yeah, it's just this, it's just, it is really weird. And I come on this podcast to offer sort of the point of view from outside and the point of view of someone who's got a lot of data and who's met a lot of these people. And I still sit here and think, man, what the hell? You know, my wife and I will have dinner with my in-laws because they live close and they'll be like, okay, tell us the crazy stuff from this week. And I'm always like, oh my God, you'll never believe. And I I was talking to someone um, this morning. She's an amazing doctor, new practice owner. Every single person on her staff quit. I don't know a lot of the details, but you know, I see, I've been seeing more and more posts like that a lot. And, and it's funny, we have a lot of people that have reached out to us and they're frantically trying to hire. So I I wanted to ask about that. Why, why is it so hard to hire veterinary professionals? Why is it hard to hire doctors? Why is it hard to hire practice managers, receptionists? What is wrong with this industry? I mean, I see a lot of people leaving and then a lot of people celebrating that they're leaving and saying, I need to get out too. What makes it so difficult to hire? There's a, how many people graduate from vet school? What's going on? Yeah. Um, I, I think there's a lot of reasons. I think one of the main reasons, um, that nobody really wants to sort of the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about is the pay. Particularly, I think that our support staff is kind of getting the short end of the stick when it comes to that. Um, Most, I mean, you can't, I'm in Houston, Texas right now. And I mean, it's hard to find veterinary technicians. One practice I'm working at, I mean, she's just at her wit's end at trying to find vet techs. And we had one vet tech who was sick during a surgery day and it just ruined our whole day. Like we couldn't do surgery because she was surgery tech. And I've spoken to a couple of, of vet techs uh, that I've worked with and overwhelmingly, they're just like, pay us more, please pay us more. Like we, this is not 
a livable wage. Like, and it's almost like each and every one of them has a story. You know, I'm taking care of my kids. I'm taking care of my sick, um, ailing parent. Um, you know, I have a spouse who is disabled. And, you know, there are real life situations that are people that people are going through where they can't just take a hit in pay uh, because, you know, the owner just doesn't feel like it or the company just doesn't feel like it or they feel like they can get another person. And I think we're coming to a situation now where the chickens are coming home to roost and uh, people are just not dealing with it anymore. And with veterinarians, I think. Some of that is the same. I think a lot of veterinarians are looking for more benefits than previous practices have been willing to offer. So I'm seeing a lot of of veterinarians going towards corporate um, where they can get those benefits packages versus the, um, you know, private practice, uh, at least in small animal medicine. So, yeah, I think that those are two major issues that we really need to address. Yeah. And, you know, we we run ads for vet hospitals that are trying to hire and we've actually had a lot of success. And, you know, we're competing with Banfield and, and they're out there throwing fat checks and serious benefits. Of course, you got to go sit at Banfield all day, um, which doesn't sound fun. But, you know, if you're right out of school, you've got student debt and then, you know, it's like I can go work at this awesome hospital on the street. They're like family. Everyone's going to be nice but I'm not going to make as much and the benefits are going to suck and they're not going to care about a lot of the important things in terms of culture. And then Banfield's like, listen, it's probably not great here, but here's an extra $20,000 signing bonus and we'll make sure you've got healthcare in a 401k. They're just going to take it. Right. Am I crazy? Exactly. You're exactly right. So I was both of you. How do we, how does this industry do it? Cause I, well, let me ask you another question. My wife was at the dentist the other day and I, and it got me thinking about vet med because is it different in dental offices or do dental offices have the same issues? Do chiropractors have the same issues? I mean, is it a vet med issue or is it just sort of like a healthcare issue where, you know, doctors make X and then anyone who supports the doctor makes much less. And then, you know, as you kind of drop down the totem pole, like do dentists have the same issues or is it primarily a vet med thing? And you might, I, none of us might know the answer to that. Yeah. I don't know that I can answer that. I know how it is when I go to my dentist and it totally seems civil and people are nice and, you know, you get in and out of there when you're supposed to. And yeah, so I I don't know that I can speak to that point, Adam. (laughs) I don't know if any of us would have known, but I, again, that's what I was saying to my wife. I'm like, I said, well, it's crazy, right? Like these vets can't hire anyone, but do dental offices have this much trouble hiring dentists? Are they struggling to find practice managers or practice managers at dental offices also losing their minds and going on Facebook and saying, I can't take this anymore. I hate it. I don't know, but I, I'm just trying to figure out and like, you know, and I always want to know that stuff just because what information can I bring to veterinary medicine? And, and it, it's just important, but yeah, it's just the hiring is so crazy right now. It's, it's nuts. And, yeah. And, and I guess the one thing I would say is I've I've been kind of referring to it as the COVID catalyst. And Cherise kind of alluded to that is just a lot of these issues were going on within the profession before COVID and the pandemic and everything that came with it in 2020 just put an like literally an accelerant on all of these things that we have all been trying to push aside or try to, you know, like dip our toes and trying to find a solution for. And then we cleared the shelters on top of that. And everyone's home, people that had never had pets before now have pets. Um, So there was like a real push 
for getting people in to have their pets looked at, you know, as new pet owners and as existing pet owners. And I think that and the fact that we were already having issues hiring people uh, and retaining them, more importantly, already having issues with salaries and, um, you know, being competitive in that respect, already having issues with culture and workplace environment, like all of those things just came to a head. And I think that is what we are seeing right now is, um, at least in veterinary medicine, is that people are just deciding left and right that two, three years into their profession and they can't take it. I'll be quite honest. I mean, I, I um, am not in private practice anymore. I haven't been for a long time. And at this point in time, I am thankful for that because the stories that my colleagues tell me and the things that I see about the, the stress levels that they're under and the workloads that they're um, really being pushed to beyond their limits to perform, to be perfect in every single instance, and to be able to take some of the, uh, you know, the emotional rough handling from clients and other staff and the general public, it's not pretty right now. Um, so I don't know that, you know, dentists and other medical professions have that same thing because we had the clearing of the shelters, which has really impacted, you know, in a positive way that we now have lots of pet owners, but at the same time, we didn't have capacity before, and now we really don't have capacity. So no, that's a good point. Sorry, I you know what I totally agree with you, Adam. I don't think I'm being negative. I think I'm just being realistic. No, I and again, like it, it's so I have two follow ups. One's one's really bad, but it as you were talking, I was thinking too just about like the difference between dentists and you know vets. I think the thing is, I think there's just so much more emotion with the vets. I mean. My, my dogs are my life. I mean, even before I met my wife, I've had these two. They've been on journeys with me as I was sort of my life changed drastically many times and found my way to where I am now. And, you know, it's like if, if something's wrong, if I have a toothache, I'm like, whatever, I'll go. I could walk into the dentist. They say, you know, yeah, man, you're going to do this, this and this. And I'll say, I don't give a shit, whatever you want. But, you know, if you if I go to the vet. And, and something's even remotely off or, you know, I see like a weird lump on my 11 year old Boston's hair. I mean, I'm really losing my mind. So I think there's just so much more emotion in veterinary medicine. You know, even when you're checking out and doing things, I think people probably see their own care is just so much differently than paying for their cats or their dogs. And, and I've told stories about times I was in clinic and told people to like, stop yelling at the receptionist. So anyway, I appreciate you all like indulging me because I did have that conversation with my wife. I'm like, dude, is, is it this bad at the dental office? Is it? And, and you know, I'll tell you all, like my wife is the head of customer service and does operations for a big board short e-commerce company. Even the emails she gets are just so absolutely insane. I mean, just beyond, you couldn't even imagine it if you want to. And of course, you know, when their support team responds to people, it has their picture, which makes it a thousand times worse. And, you know, everyone out there, just use your imaginations on the worst things that people could say and whatever you're thinking, it's worse. So unfortunately it's just tough. And I, and I always say to her, if they have the time to send this email about a pair of board shorts or, you know, a hoodie, imagine the other crazy stuff these people are doing in their lives. So and, and, you know, it's the same at, and, you know, veterinary medicines, but I want to, I really want to talk about your organization. So 2014, right. That's when it was formed the multicultural veterinary medical association, 2014. Mm -hmm. That's the date. Yep. Okay. So that's seven years ago. Um, what was the straw that broke the camel's back? What was the moment? It's like, all right, we're doing this right now. 
Yeah, so I, I guess I'll, I'll speak to that. So I wasn't around at the very beginning of uh, when MCVMA was founded. That was actually the brainchild of two amazing veterinarians, uh, Rachel Cesar Martinez and Kara Williams. And they had both been active in their veterinary schools, uh, student organizations that were focused on um, race and ethnicity and supporting those students and kind of increasing people's awareness and cultural competency at at their individual vet schools. And so that same organization has a national organization um, known as VOICE. And so they were both at different veterinary schools. They found each other when they became national officers and then stayed very connected to each other. And upon graduation from veterinary school, realized, huh, there is nothing like that same support network, that same organization that exists for you once you graduate. And so that was really their concept of why they wanted to start it is to start that support group and that support network. And so um, so it really started from social media and a, a closed group so that they could support one another, share information, validate experiences, amplify voices. And, and that's where I found them was in that group. And then several years later, joined as a board member. So so that's really kind of the origin of it. Cool. Okay, so that was so that was in seven years ago. I'm going to ask a question that's going to sound bad. I don't mean it to sound bad. I'm going to ask two questions. Part of this, so like one is, do you feel like you've made significant changes in the industry? And and I'm going to add on to that. If yes, was it what you expected, or was there too much resistance, or was it well beyond what you expected? Just curious, like after seven years, does the organization feel like, hell yeah, we're on a roll? Or is it like, okay, this is a harder fight than we were planning on? So um, just sort of to step back, it's one of the sort of the origin stories. I, I know that Tina had mentioned voice, but voice originally was veterinarians as uh, one in culture and ethnicity. And it was actually founded at Cornell by Julio Lopez and During his time, um, he helped to propel it to be a national organization um, through a a sponsorship with Pfizer Animal Health. And then I became the first national president of Voice. Then subsequently, um, two of our other leaders in the group, um, our current president, Marie Sato Quixal and one of our past presidents, uh, Kara Williams, were also national voice presidents. So we all sort of came, we started all on the student level and then transitioned it to the professional level. Dr. Cesar Martinez and Dr. Williams um, made that transition for us. So it didn't just start there. I just wanted to sort of talk about that part of the origin. So then they decided, yes, we want to go ahead and transition this to a professional because there's there's nothing after we are students and we're out here in the world. There's nothing to connect us. So I think originally it was started as sort of a way to, for uh, people of color within our, the industry to sort of network, but it just grew to so much more. It's grown to where we have sort of influenced the profession as far as DEI um, is concerned. The AAVMC has a longstanding history of doing a lot of work, um, particularly uh, Dr. Lisa Greenhill um, in DEI in the profession and really pretty much 
the majority of the research that has been done, the pivotal and especially the preliminary research uh, for DEI in veterinary medicine has been done by AVMC and Lisa Greenhill. But now we're starting to sort of step in in there and we're, we've got our own research projects going along doing research uh, with DEI. We've got a project where we're looking at the impact of COVID on veterinary medicine, specifically looking at the impact of veterinarians of color um, when it comes to that. We've been uh, influencing other organizations, whether they be nonprofits or corporate entities um, that have asked for sort of our help and our direction when it comes to DEI. So it became a lot larger than just us sort of connecting um, to the point where we transitioned to becoming really a driving force and influence in, in the DEI space in veterinary medicine. Okay. So that I appreciate all that extra information. So, but now here we are seven years later. Do we, do we, do we feel, have we, and again, I don't, I don't always think this is in our hands, but was the industry receptive to everything or has it been smooth? Has it been a grind? Like, how would you categorize the last seven years? Tina? Oh, you're going to make me answer this, aren't you? Yes. Um, <laughs> Uh-oh, real talk alert. Let's go. No, no, Sharice gave the real th- talk too. Uh, so, um. I guess from my perspective, um, because I was president in twenty in the calendar year 2020, and so a lot happened both within veterinary medicine and just in the world uh, with social injustice, social injustice, a little thing called a pandemic, you know, all yes, all of those things, and and really, um, you know, as a as a full time new employee at the university, and then raising, you know teenage kids and, and all those things. And then being, you know, part of MCVMA and wanting the organization to succeed, it was a lot. And, um, you know, we were in some ways very much thrust into the spotlight in 2020 as an organization to say, how can we be better as a profession? How can we make changes that we had been needing for a long time? And it was almost like this revival of DEI in, in the sense that it became more than just um, the BIPOC, the Black Indigenous People of Color community saying we need change and more of a recognition of what is allyship and how can the profession at large start to do their part to change the profession. Um, and so I would be lying if I said that I feel that we have done all the things and we're good, check, 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 we're good to go for 2021, uh, green light. But we also have made some significant changes, and and I feel that MCVMA has had a very positive impact in um, you know the DEI efforts that have gone on within the profession. I think if it wasn't for our organization and many other affinity organizations and the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges (AAVMC) and the work of Dr. Lisa Greenhill and others, I think that there's no way any one organization could or should be able to to do all of this. But it's something that um, I think in many instances sets apart MCVMA in that we really try to to push and to encourage people both as organizations and then as individuals to say we all play a part in this and, you know, let's work together on this rather than saying, you know what, 
all you white people over there, you have to do all this work by yourself. Um, and we're not going to help you at all. That's not what we're about. And that's not the type of impact that we hope to achieve. But yeah, we have not achieved all the things within veterinary medicine. We are still a very white profession. But I do think that there's more people that what I call are in the murky middle, which is to say that there are more individuals within the profession and quite frankly, outside the profession that recognize that they all play a part in this and they see the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion within the profession. So I think that there's more people that have open ears and open hearts to what we are trying to accomplish as an organization. Yeah. Well, and I do think, you know, my little tongue in cheek remark, like what for last year? I mean, last year was the most exhausting year because you use just everything that was happening and it just every day seemed like a nightmare. And, and even honestly, I'll say even, you know, going into this year, there's still a lot happening. That's just, you, you just look at this country and say, what the hell happened to us? And I, and I won't get all crazy political here. I just, I look at this country. I don't know what the, anyway, don't let me go on that tangent, but <laughs> I mean, I'm really big on, I'm really big on data. I mean, my background, I was a data analyst for, for years and, you know, we were, we do a lot of internal case studies and, and we had a really open discussion at Whisker Cloud. You know, I think it was earlier this year, Time Magazine did the feature on Tierra Price Mm -hmm. and, and that was, and, and, and it was a great story. But one of the things that I think we all looked at, and especially me being like a big nerd was they had a lot of data in this, in this post. And, and, and I, and I have that written down and I'm just reading it of the more than 104,000 veterinarians in the nation, nearly 90% are white, less than 2% are Hispanic and almost none are black. And I I don't understand why. And again, I was, you know, we had this conversation internally and and they even had another stat. It said the number of black vets dropped from 2.1% of the total vet population 2016 to below 1% in 2019. Now I'm a data analyst. So I know that from 2016 to 2019, there's probably a ton of graduation, the larger pool you have, the percentages might drop, but that's also still interesting because that tells me that the trends even at 2.1%, we're going, it's going in the wrong direction. And I don't understand why, because, you know, I live in Southern California and it's very diverse here. And and I grew up in Las Vegas, which is very diverse. And I grew up in Denver, or I was in Denver for a long time, which is comically not diverse, (laughs) Um, but almost like ridiculously not diverse. But here in Southern California, it's, why would you not want diversity at your practice when you have such diversity in our country and you know whether you're in Houston whether you're in Chicago whether you're in Arizona whether you're in California Florida it doesn't matter every you know a lot of people we're not talking about Wyoming or you know I'm not talking about St. George Utah here no offense to any of you but I'm not talking about you right now I'm just talking about other places in this country like why? What is happening? Where is the trend? I'm curious because I don't know. And and I think you two sort of being in the weeds might know better than me. What? Why are we not attracting those people to this profession? So um, <laughs> I don't think that there's just one answer to that. Um, so with your, your background in data and stats, so we do know that like the U.S. is approximately like 70% white. So it's, it's not a shocker to have a predominantly white profession, but the fact that our profession is 90% white and it's dwindling as far as representation from people of color. Um, And we're not keeping up with 
other professions that are similar to us. We're not keeping up with, you know, physicians or dentists um, as far as representation is concerned. And I think that what Tina said as far as her origin story was really important, that she had a mentor and a family member that was there for her um, and exposed her to veterinary medicine at a very early age, where that's not the case for many students of color, children of color. I know I didn't see my first Black veterinarian until I was in college. Now imagine I I knew I wanted to be a veterinarian since I was in second grade, but I didn't actually see anybody that looked like me until I was in college. So having sort of that mentorship, I think, is really important. And I I'm big on mentorship. I'm a mentor to, to several students. I always tell people it doesn't have to be somebody that looks like you. But just to be in the room, I think, is is important. And I think that a lot of uh, students of color are just not getting those opportunities from what I'm hearing. And so I, I think that that's probably a good start for us as far as exposure. You know, there are other things that we, we have to really recognize are real, like systemic racism and people being shut out of opportunities. And, you know, that could be anywhere from a mentorship uh, opportunity to the admissions process. Not necessarily, I know that they have looked at it, admissions, um, not necessarily um, qualifications, but do you know where to go? Do you know what to do to even get that exposure to be able to get your foot in the door? Um, so I think that those are some things that we really need to address. And I don't think we're going to get one answer here, but there are some. <laughs> I mean, I would think that if I was, I mean, and this is going to sound really weird, but here we go. If I was the head of admissions at a particular veterinary school, I would almost want to be the veterinary college. And I, and, and Tina, you're probably going to have way more information on this than me. Wouldn't you want to be known as a veterinary school that is really big on that and really big on diversity inclusion and sort of known for that. Isn't that a great opportunity to sort of, I don't even want to say, I was going to say force yourself, but I don't even want to say force yourself. I mean, but almost to have a team of people there that care so much about it, that you, you are known for that. Is it, is it easy to do that? Am I crazy off base on that? So, uh, Oh, Sharice, were you going to say something? Oh, I was just going to say, well, you can hire, you can hire diversity consultants and say you're, you know, you're doing all this for diversity, but really your biggest influences are probably going to be direct referrals. So if I say, hey, I had a great experience at this college of veterinary medicine, you should go there too. They treated me great. So you have to also treat your existing students in a manner in which they would want to have other people that look like them go to your college. That's a great point. And I graduated from business school at UNLV. And to be honest, I've never told a single person to go there. And they asked me for money every other month. And I didn't have a great experience. And my wife went there too. We both graduated from there. And it's just one of those things where, and, and I never thought of it like what you just said. I've never thought, but I wonder how many people do go to college because they said, oh, well, my friend or my cousin or my dad or whatever went there and loved it. So that's really interesting. Thank you. Yeah. And I guess what I'll add is that just like from an academic perspective, yes, I think that there are a lot of veterinary schools that recognize the value of having 
um, not only a diverse student population, but also staff and faculty. But the struggle is real in that it's not as simple as just opening up your doors and saying, hey, we want everybody of every race and ethnicity to come attend our school. You know, the reality is that process, whether you're a person of color or not, starts like that's a long journey. And so whether you find out in high school that this is what you want to do or you find out much younger or in some cases, I know a lot of um, BIPOC veterinarians that didn't even think about becoming a veterinarian until college. Um, when somebody said you should go into veterinary medicine and they were like, what is that? So um, I think for a lot, Sharice alluded to it, is that the mentorship piece is important, that ongoing support early and often check-ins with students that are interested in veterinary medicine. Um, you know, there's a lot of barriers, I think, that are thrown up um, either in the admissions process or in other places that make it a real challenge for people that don't kind of fit the typical profile of a, a veterinary student. And so, you know, the typical veterinary student right now is a white female. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, it's, in, in, you know, you talk about statistics, it's an interesting statistic to look at the AVMA economic reports to see that there is some really skewed data coming out to say, we have, you know, a significant number of students that will graduate from veterinary medicine with a lot of debt, like upwards of $200,000 in debt of just veterinary school alone, so not including undergraduate debt. But then we also have a fair number of students that are graduating with zero debt. And so now, like, how is that happening? Yeah, there's probably some people that have full ride scholarships, but not that many. And so you start to look into it, and there's probably a fair number of people with zero debt graduating that could easily walk away from the profession at any point in time because they did it and they have no debt, and so they could move on to something else. Um, and so I think it's a real struggle to say, like, open the doors wide and let's be more diverse because it, there's like so many things that would have to change because, again, systemic racism, what happens is there's like things that are put in place so that certain individuals or certain groups, you know, ha are advantaged and then certain groups are disadvantaged. Um, and so I think unless we start to address those things um, and continue to work on them, I don't know that we will see that diversity in any meaningful number across the entire United States. Yeah, I'm just sitting here, too. I'm just like rubbing my temples, just like ah, this country kills me. Um, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just ah, OK. People out there, please get your shit together. Anyway, sorry. So, all right, I'm gonna. I and I, I've been. I've been excited to ask this question to sort of end this episode. So, Sharice, let's let's go first here. So, let's say you had all of a sudden you had a superpower and you could just you could give a thirty second message to whether it's everyone in vet med, pet parents, everyone in general, and they everyone would hear you in their head. Yeah, this is a weird one. This is out of left field. Yeah, I'm like, um. I don't know if I'm going to have an answer for this. <laughs> what would your, what would your message be? You know, if you, again, you've got, you've got, however you want to do this. It's like I said, it's, it's, you know, whether it's all the people of veterinary medicine, it's all the pet parents in the world, it's America as a whole. What would you say for 30 seconds and just get your point across where they have to listen? Oh man. Um, I would say just think forward, prepare for the next, this upcoming generation. I know you had asked me like one of the questions was like an essential thing that we need for vet med in the future. And I just really think we just need forward progression. And 
I feel like I'm getting really good vibes from this up and coming generation. They're just really forward thinking. They're just totally resistant to cultural intolerance and uh, mistreatment and judgment and the exploitation when it comes to job situations that us previous generations have dealt with. And, you know, I see the younger colleagues that are just leaving these toxic work environments and they're calling them out. They're saying, hey, you you sucked as an employer and nobody else go there to, to be mistreated. And I'm just here for it. So, you know, I think that us as, as veterinarians need to be prepared for that. I think clients need to feel heard. Um, you know, this, we, we serve all generations, but we need to be prepared for um, the needs of, of, of the generations that are, that are, going to be our majority pet owners here soon. So yeah, that, that would be my answer, I guess. The best answer I can give. <laughs> That's tough. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, and Tina, now you're literally in their heads. You can scream away at them, which is what I would do. All right. So should I go ahead and give my, my version? Yes. Okay. And I've been, and, and thank you, Sharice, for going first so that I could have a tiny bit more time to think. Um, <laughs> It, this one's a tough one. I guess what I would say is if I had the ear of everyone, um, both within the profession, pet owners, all of it, I would say let's give each other some grace. So if you're pet owners and you're upset that you can't get your pet in sooner or that you're frustrated that your veterinary hospital is still working curbside and can't do the face-to-face, you know, have some grace and that we're not all perfect as veterinary professionals and we're all human. So you getting upset at us over something that we literally are trying not to do, uh, but it's just we're bound by time and space. Like it, it hurts. It really hurts. Um, in general, veterinarians are and, and veterinary technicians, nurses, we want to please people. We want people to be happy. We want pets to be healthy. And so we do everything in our power to, to do that. And so, you know, give give those uh, veterinary professionals grace. Um, I think as a profession, we need to give each other grace in the recognition, you know, to Sharice's point that we're trying to change things like these upcoming generations are trying to change things. So for those people that really um, want to embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion, that want to be allies, like let's give each other grace and recognize like nobody's going to get this right every single time. But as long as you keep trying and you're moving in the right direction, that's what we want. And that's the only thing that's going to change this. So that's really something that I, I say a lot and I should practice more often because I don't know that I give myself much grace, but I think that's an important piece. Well, you both nailed it. And you're both were so much calmer than me because I would like be in everyone's heads. I'd be like, stop being mean. Use your heads. Take a breath. I always say that. I say that a lot. I'm like, take a breath. Don't be so reactionary to everything. So MCVMA, where can people find you if they want to learn more? I heard you have like a really beautiful new website coming. Um, but outside of that, where can they find you and all of that good stuff? Uh, so we, yes, we do. Um, thanks to Whisker Cloud, we will have a brand new website that's going to um, be a big reveal later this year. So we are at mcvma.org. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, I think. Oh, and we also have a YouTube channel. So you can find us in a lot of places. 
Well, I just want to say thank you both so much for being here, um, being part of the conversation. I hope I did right by this conversation because I had to tell you both before we started recording. I said, listen, I, you know, I, I don't want to screw up these talks. And and I and to be honest, I hate that no one else at Whisker Cloud likes doing the podcast because I love it. But we have many people here that probably would be better suited than me to have this episode with you all. But I really appreciate you, you know, taking the time to spend with me and give great answers. Yeah. Thanks for having us. You did great, Adam. <laughs> thanks for having us. Yeah. We enjoyed it. And, and everyone out there, like I said, please subscribe to Whisker Talks. We're on Apple. We're on Spotify. Uh, you know, check out their website, mcvma.org. Check it out and not too long and you're, you're going to see some really cool stuff. And everyone have a great week.